Hey everybody, welcome to the season one finale of What Happened to You. This has been an incredible experience so far and I'm so grateful to all of the guests that have come on and to everyone who listens, watches, and supports the podcast. I feel like I have a sense of purpose now and that feels amazing (laughs) and I can't thank all of you enough for that. I'll put out an update episode next week to fill everybody in on the plans for season two, as well as some other things that are in the works, including a new podcast that's coming out soon. And now, this is episode 25 with Katerina Hayes. Hey, Katerina. Um, hi. Hello. How's it going? It's definitely going, that's for sure. <laughs> cool hair. Thank you. I just did it like literally 10 minutes ago. <laughs> oh, wow. I was going to say, I didn't notice that in your videos. That looks great. Um, thank you. Thank you so much for, for doing this. I'm really excited to have you on. Thank you for inviting me. It's very, very exciting. I'm glad to hear that. I saw your video of it was the Caillou like sound and it was so fucking funny. I posted it as a joke thinking that it, no one would see it and now it's got like over 200k views and it just like keeps going and keeps climbing and like I have people in the comments telling me like I'm an inspiration and stuff like that and it's a lot and I just feel really like whole if that makes sense it makes total sense yeah it's an amazing feeling when you have something that was really traumatic and horrible that happened to you and you're able to talk about it and express it in a way that people gravitate towards and I'm very much on board like I think humor without humor I wouldn't have even started to heal honestly and it's it seems like you're in a similar position humor like I don't know it made me feel like really uncomfortable at first so I was like well that's not really a topic you know I feel like I should joke about and now I'm just like completely like yeah you know both my parents are in prison and you know you can't use your mama jokes on me I'm just you know immune <laughs> <laughs> yeah and it's funny how like it seems like the funniest shit comes from what is true like what's what actually <laughs> yes. happened you know I'm very new to this like I just turned 18 and like uh-huh. it's always been my dream to be a public speaker and do this stuff but yeah. honestly like this is really morbid <laughs> I didn't think I was gonna make it this far but I'm here anyway <laughs> so um I'm just kind of going with it <laughs> hey I'm I'm happy you made it this far and I'm happy to be here with you so what happened to you my biological father Michael Mosher he raped me for 10 years of my life starting when I was three I put his ass in prison. (laughs) (laughs) So when you were three, that was the first experience that you had. What was that like? Um, Well, started with my mother. I was like really young and they were potty training me. And I remember this because like anytime I went to the bathroom on my own, I had to go to my mom and she would give me the star and I would put it on this chart. And like once I got a certain amount of stars, like on the chart, like I would get a stuffed animal because I was obsessed with those. Mm -hmm. and um like I had gone to the bathroom and I went to go get my mom and like my mom pulled me into a room at this point in time like anytime I was abused they call it medicine that always really bothered me Mm -hmm. and um my mom had like she like picked me up and like put me on the bed and she took out this red like paisley bandana my father he had really long hair and he worked at a paper mill 
and it was really hot in there. So he always used these bandanas to like keep his head back. So I, it was like one of my dad's bandanas and I didn't even think about it. I was just like, okay, whatever. You know, I don't even know what was going through my head at the time. I was three. Yeah. And she blindfolded me and um, like prepared me. Like, cause uh-huh. there's honestly no better word to describe it. She used toys and that, didn't last long at all honestly like it feels like that lasted only for a few minutes and then like I was crying because it hurt like a son of a bitch and she gave me a popcorn ball and sent me out to play and it was just immediately gone from my mind I was like whatever and I just played with my siblings gotcha so do you remember if she was like saying anything to you while that was going on I remember she was trying to comfort me and kept like apologizing and saying that this is what she never called my father Michael or anything. She called him daddy. It was always really weird, especially when we got older. And so she just kept saying, this is what daddy wants. And I was just crying and asking her to stop. And like, there was nothing I could do. I was really young. Yeah, um, no kidding. I mean, there's quite literally nothing you can do. And yeah. so you go out and play, you have the cheese ball. And, uh, <laughs> and so what's, what happens after that? Um, I don't really remember what happens till later on, like in that day, like the same exact day this happens. So my father got home from his job at the paper mill at seven o'clock and, um, me and all my siblings are sitting and we're watching this horror movie that my father put on and he's sitting in the back. And whenever my father got home, he would always just take all his clothes off and sit around in his boxers. Mm-hmm. Like that was normal for us. Like, and he did it like our entire lives like even up to the day that he got arrested and so like it's a really weird detail to remember but I remember specifically he was wearing these gray boxers I don't like that I remember that honestly (laughs) and always the like stupid little details that like get me and I'm like why do I remember that I don't understand how that out of everything that happened is the thing I remember so clearly about this memory right it feels like oftentimes you know people that haven't been through something like this also question the memory aspect of things and they're like mm-hmm. you know if you can remember that well why can't you remember all of this other stuff that was going on and it's like I don't know you know it's in I got ways. a lot of comments like I'm sorry I didn't mean to interrupt you not at all you're good um, I got like a ridiculous amount of comments under my video of people being like you were three there's no way you remembered and like I even yeah. got a couple comments of people being like god wouldn't have let this happen this isn't oh, real and I was just like <laughs> How does that make any sense? Like, by that logic, like, God wouldn't let anything bad happen. And therefore, like, the Holocaust would not be a thing. Perfect example. Yes. Yes. Everything is not real based on that logic, for sure. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's what's kind of crazy about TikTok is while you are exposed to a bunch of really amazing people, you're also exposed to some absolute clowns. It's important, I think, to take... TikTok comments with a grain of salt sometimes and just recognize that a lot of the people um, really have no idea. But I completely empathize where you're coming from. I mean, I've gotten comments similar to that where it's like, why did it take you so long to speak up? It went on for two years? Like, what do you, what do you mean? Yeah. And, and uh, it's just one of those things that it's difficult to understand if you haven't been through it. It's not their fault necessarily, but it's, uh, it's sometimes it's hard to not take those things personally. At the end of the day, it's just more important to register how many people that you're helping. But anyway, so this happens and your dad gets home and you're remembering the boxers. Mm-hmm. And like, 
I remember my mother was out in the kitchen doing something and she comes in like and she's got her phone in her hand and like my dad's got his phone in his hand and like they're from like context clues I have from other memories I have I'm pretty sure he was texting her like telling her what to do um because there were like other times she would put her phone down and Michael would get up and go to his room and you could always like you feel it when something like that's gonna happen like just it's palpable like the demeanor like just changes completely and like just the anxiety like that you feel when you know like I remember I looked at my mom's phone and this isn't like the first memory but another memory Mm -hmm. like I looked at my mom's phone and my father had texted you know bring me in some fun and he was referring to me I remember I just felt so sick that that was how he did it yeah and we can maybe get into this a bit later, but I can imagine that it was happening to your mom too. Yes. She and... was just as much of a victim as we were. So uh, like, I remember my mom came out and she was asking like me and my siblings, you know, do you guys want to go help clean the garage? And like, when you're a little kid, like, I don't know what it is about them, but like, whenever my parents were doing something, I always wanted to help them. I always wanted to like help with cooking and help make dinner and all of this stuff. And so like, I remember I got so excited and I wanted to go. And so, you know, my dad and my mom got up and they walked me out to the garage and there was this cot in there. Like the cot had always been in there. I didn't think anything of it, you know. It was just, you know, part of our garage. Like it was normal for me. And they took me and blindfolded me and completely undressed me. And my father sodomized me as my mother video taped for him. Whoa. Yeah. How did you know that she was videotaping? My father showed me the tape one year. I think I was either 11 or 12. I don't remember. It's really hard to like place timelines. Yeah. But I had gotten to a point in the abuse where I was just like, I was being such a fucking bitch and just like, I wasn't taking it. I was always fighting back. I was always giving something back to him. I was never just taking it for lack of better wording and so <laughs> well, i would, I would like, definitely say that that's not you being a bitch i would say that that's pretty reasonable <laughs> actually. it's a pretty fair response um <laughs> yeah so after they take your blindfold off what what happens i don't remember exactly what happened like after they took it off but i do remember the reward i got for being quote-unquote good yeah (laughs) there's no other way to word it more cheese balls or what'd you get my father had a bunch of like stuffed animals in his um garage that were his when he was young and he had this little teddy bear and he gave it to me and I actually had it all the way up to last year just because I'm really sentimental about stuffed animals (laughs) and I just kept that because I felt bad throwing it out and then um I brought it into counseling one day I don't remember if I actually showed my counselor, but like bringing it in was just like enough for me. And I just threw it out. I let it go. Mm-hmm. How did that I feel? Hate that bear. Let it go. <laughs> oh, it yeah, felt amazing. <laughs> Not long after I threw it out, I um, actually cut complete contact with my father's side of the family. They are very toxic and basically tell me to get over it because, you know, he's still part of the family, you know. One of my cousins told me at my great-grandmother's funeral that 
it doesn't matter what happened because he's still her uncle Mikey. Kind of amazing the uh, hoops that people will jump through in terms of disregarding things that have happened when it's somebody that is important to them, whether it's somebody mm-hmm. that they look up to, like, you know, Woody Allen or Michael Jackson or somebody that they idolize or somebody that's a part of their family. It's super difficult to, excuse me, it's super difficult <laughs> to acknowledge these things that have happened if you know the person very well and it totally changes your whole perception of them. And oftentimes mm-hmm. people just don't want to come to terms with that. I understand, especially like the fear, because she was like, this cousin in question was really close with us throughout our whole childhood. And I was personally really close with her. And like, some of the things I've heard from my grandmother and like, I know that like this whole family, like they're really, really close. It's kind of uncomfortable how close they are. Mm-hmm. Um, it kind of makes sense that Michael came from them. <laughs> That's really <laughs> nasty to say, but I don't care. Yeah, it totally um, makes sense. Yeah. So the grandmother, like oh, Michael's ahead. mother herself, like she's told me stuff before, like, about how Michael's doing and like how good he is and all of this stuff after like he's in prison like I have an order of protection she can't tell me anything like that Mm -hmm. and she wanted to give me these letters that he's writing an apology that he hasn't finished yet and that was after he was in prison for three years I finally gave this woman a chance and was like I'm gonna try you know let's see what we can do you know maybe she isn't like this anymore Mm mm-hmm did not go well. She honestly just kind of like took our relationship and just hucked it in a trash can and called it a day. One thing that I've kind of noticed about people that are so adamant about not believing victims is that it really never has anything to do with the victim. It has everything to do with themselves. So your cousin, Mm -hmm. for example, who didn't believe you was probably going through something similar maybe to a different extent or maybe the same degree, regardless, you are causing them by speaking up to have to face certain aspects of their own life and experience. And a lot of people are not ready for that. And it's a lot easier to just dismiss a victim and not have to think about it yourself. It can be a self-defense mechanism. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think that that's one thing that's really helped me when I get, like, I remember I got this one comment on my TikTok that was from a guy that was like, the quote was like, I know this guy personally, he's lying for views, don't believe a word he says, or something, something to that effect. And of course, I had no idea who the person was. But of course, it's really helpful to know that that person is, I mean, it's not, you don't want anybody else to have experienced these things, of course, but it's helpful to know that the reason these people are mad at you or not wanting to believe you really has nothing to do with you. And I think that that Mm -hmm. disassociation can make it easier to continue speaking up and to not take these things too personally. It's also interesting how you, you were talking about how good it felt to let go and get rid of that stuffed animal. Oftentimes, I feel like we're not even aware of the things that still tie us to these events and things that were associated with them, whether they provide sentimental value, whatever the reason is that we hold on to them. There is so much value in letting go of everything associated with these events and um, allowing yourself to, uh, yeah, I mean, just move on. I'm glad that you had that experience. So what happened after you got that animal? I don't really remember after the animal. I remember going in and like watching the movie and 
something I do remember is like I kept crying a lot afterwards like and I was crying when we were watching the movie something my parents did when they got mad at us was they would literally duct tape our mouths shut and just throw us in a corner until we shut up and you could sit in that corner all day if you did not be quiet and because I was crying because I was just brutally fucking sodomized I was duct taped and thrown in my room and told to stay so I was just you know sitting there freshly raped with a (laughs) new cute teddy bear yeah freshly raped what a phrase (laughs) (laughs) the best way to describe it I remember one time I was told to lay on my bed and not move until I shut up and I cried so hard that I passed out yeah (laughs) I stopped crying after a little while. I think like everyone who's in a situation that is that extreme where you're being raped every other day and like there's physically nothing you can do after a little while. It's just like this is honestly really horrifying to say it becomes mundane. Mm -hmm. And no matter how much you don't like it, it's just part of life at that point. It's something you have to accept because when you're that young, you can't get out no matter how hard you try it so many times thought about running away and if my siblings weren't there I wouldn't I absolutely would have I would have gone in a heartbeat Mm -hmm. like there would have been no way to keep me but I know that if I went like while my siblings were still there it would have gotten 10 times worse on them and I just I couldn't bear the thought that's a really noble thing to do and It's a similar type of logic that victims use often, which is like the additional blame or the additional responsibility that we take on going through these experiences of not wanting other people to suffer as a result of our actions. We come up with all of these hypothetical scenarios for what will happen if we speak up, for example, or run away. And if any of those scenarios happen to harm other people in the process, I think victims especially feel like they just can't do it. It's part of why Mm -hmm. it took me so long to speak up about what was happening to me is because I didn't want my friend to, I didn't want my friend to be mad at me. And it can be as simple as that. But especially if you think that your siblings are going to just get all of the raping that you would have been experiencing if you run away, then how could Mm -hmm. you? How could you run away? And I think that it's really awesome that you that you didn't I mean it's you know it would have been nice to not get raped all the time of course yeah but the the logic that you used is uh quite heroic so thank you yeah and you said that this happened every other day roughly how long there was on for a little over 10 years I had just been 13 for literally like a little over a month when my parents were arrested thank god (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> Honestly, I was at a really bad spot and like my parents would use food as a means to control us and help keep us, you know, in line. And since I couldn't control anything in my life, I could control whether I ate what they gave me or not. Mm. So I didn't need it. And when they took me out of my parents' house, I was 72 pounds and very, very sick. I was really not healthy. I don't think I would have lasted another year, like at the rate I was going. Yeah, it's interesting clinging to things uh, that we can control. It's Mm -hmm. like during this time, ages three through 13, were you going to school? 
or what was your life like? I had no schooling. I was only taken to the doctors if, so like, I've got to bring like a story to like explain this properly. Like I was never taken to the doctors, but I remember two times in my whole life I ever was. And that was because I got a really bad ear infection because I'm really allergic to metals. And my grandmother, she like works with wire and all this stuff. And she made me a pair of earrings and they had frogs on them. And frogs have always been my favorite, like, because my grandma loves them and I love them and used to catch them. And I had to wear them because my cousin was over and she had the same earrings. And so, you know, we were wearing them and playing dress up Mm -hmm. and I got a horrible ear infection from it. And it was so painful and I like couldn't hear. And my aunt, you know, my cousin's mother was freaking out. And so my parents had to take me to the doctor. And then the only other time I ever went was because like I physically couldn't eat and was throwing up everything I had in me because I had really bad cat scratch fever. So I had a really bad bacterial infection. Gotcha. And did you ever leave your house at any other points besides these doctor visits? Um, rarely, very rarely, never on my own, always with my parents. And the only times like we ever did, it would be, you know, if they needed help going to Walmart or my father wanted to go somewhere to, you know, take pictures to put on Facebook so everyone could see we were a perfect family. Yeah. <laughs> there are of some course. of like we were at this apple <laughs> orchard and like he kept throwing apples at us and like trying to have an apple fight and like I remember I just looked so miserable in all the photos and mm-hmm. like he took us up to see our grandparents who live in Scary and like there's pictures because you know he had to have everyone take pictures so he put it all over Facebook and like I'm just like scowling so hard in the back seat like just the <laughs> look on my face is just priceless honestly yeah and so part of why I think these experiences happen so frequently is is when you don't really know any better um, when you don't know exactly how to articulate what's going on you know that it's wrong and you can kind of mm-hmm. decipher that but you don't know how to get out of it. And I think it's, you know, obviously your parents didn't want you having these normal experiences to figure out that what you were going through was not normal. Um, They barely let us go and see family. The only times they ever did was like for like a 4th of July bonfire. And it was always my father's family we went to see. We barely got to see my mother's. And the only time we ever got to see like our grandparents on our mother's side was when mother like she snuck them into the house while like my father was at work and there had to be no trace of her being there she wasn't allowed to like if she gave us gifts like we had to hide them it had to be our secret and was your where did you grow up by the way in saratoga i was right on the cusp of saratoga county and warren county but it's this little trailer park it's actually right across from dorothy nolan elementary school gotcha so you didn't really have much interaction with quote unquote, the outside world, um, unless it was Mm -hmm. facilitated by your parents. When you're going, when you're growing up in this environment, does that seem normal to you when you're growing up? Or like, did you have, um, like, did you have any friends other than your siblings? Or were you not allowed to meet other people for the most part? I really wasn't allowed to meet other people. If we went outside, we weren't allowed to like, we were in a trailer park. So like, we weren't really like, when we were really young, especially, like not like really young, I'm talking like younger than 10, um, 
like we were only allowed to stay in our yard we weren't allowed to even like touch the pavement like we had to stay in this little tiny spot and we were only allowed to do certain things and it was only after like we hit like a certain age and all of us got like on the older end of things gotcha was your dad ever abusive to your mom he broke her hand once and this was witnessed by me and my siblings we would constantly watch him beat her. We had pets and he would abuse them in front of literally people who came over to the house. Like he had this friend who was like his best friend. And like this guy was like at our house like every weekend. Ironically, this guy also (laughs) abused me. Big surprise. Um, Really? Yeah. Not nice. (laughs) (laughs) But this guy, like he would come over and Michael would abuse us in front of him and like beat an asshole to us in front of him and I remember when I was really really young this guy like sat us down and talked to us and he was like Michael just gets mad you know you just gotta forgive him and move on you know don't get in front of him and he won't be that way and it was just like the fuck (laughs) like we're kids like I was like really young when he did this like I was still in the house where the first memory happened yeah so (laughs) seriously really young And how did the abuse with that guy who would come over, how did that happen? It only ever happened once. And it took me a long time to realize that it actually did happen. And it wasn't just something, you know, that my brain just thought of and was like, oh, I'm, you know, I'm going to think of that now. My therapist and I did a lot of EMDR. And it's the only reason I can actually properly remember it. But it only happened once. And he took the video and I'm pretty sure that is the whole reason that he did it I'm pretty sure my father made him this guy like as far as I can remember that was the only time it ever happened and he was always like really really sweet and really kind and he always like apologized on behalf of my father I never thought he knew about the sexual abuse until after everything came out but I'm more than positive he did at this point considering he did something to me himself. Yeah, it's interesting the dynamics that were going on between your father's friend and your mother and your father. Before all of the arrests happened, you said that your dad showed you the videos. Yeah, I was either 11 or 12. I was around that age. And um, I remember that I was like, really fed up with all the abuse. And I was like fighting back. And One night I went to my father and I told him that if he did anything again, I was going to tell the neighbors and I was going to call the cops because I was like, there were these two like wonderful old ladies that lived next to us. And like, I always went over and had just the best conversations with them ever. Like they were like, great. Like those women. Wow. (laughs) Like, (laughs) holy crap. And so, um, I told him that and like, he got really angry and he just was like talking about it's not wrong society just thinks it's wrong other you know fathers don't love their daughters like I do Mm. and like I remember I was just like stuck like like what do you say to that like it's so disgusting and I knew that if I spoke up anymore he would have done something and so I just walked out and I don't remember how long the abuse stopped for. It was like anywhere from like three weeks to a month. But it started back up on February 9th, actually. It was the day. And um, it was honestly the worst time it ever happened. 
And my father, while he was raping me, told me that if I don't comply, he's going to put me in foster care. And the people in foster care, quote unquote, will not love me as they rape me. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah. Wow. And yeah. <laughs> It's a it's a it's a less loving rape in foster care. That's uh, <laughs> wild logic. I remember uh, it took me so long to finally like be able to like verbalize like what he said and like say it again myself because it was just like one of those things I was just stuck on completely. And like once I got it out, like I was just like, "What the fuck?" Yeah. Like, and was that the time that he showed you the video? He had showed me the video after he was done. And he was telling me that I wanted it. And, you know, this was his proof that I wanted it. And I remember after he showed me, he only showed me clips. It was really disgusting. How could he say that you want? I, I can't see. You, you blindfolded me. How am I supposed to? I don't know what's going on. What, it, I'm a little toddler. The only thing I'm concerned about is which Barbie I'm playing with next. <laughs> yeah. He had the audacity, okay? This dumbass had the audacity to tell the cops when they were interrogating him that I seduced him when what? I was three years old. I seduced him, okay? Oh, my <laughs> God. Okay, so let's, let's get saying, into that. You know, it's the alcohol and all this stuff. He was in interrogation for 17 hours before he finally was like, fine, this happened. And when he came out and said, yeah, something happened, he said, I seduced him. Holy cow. That really says a lot about sort of where his head was at at the time. Mm-hmm. That he thought that people would be like, oh, okay, nice. Well, let's forget it then. <laughs> you know. Like, <laughs> so how did the cops find out about this? It was either the end of 2015 or the start of 2016. I don't remember what month it was exactly, but it was somewhere in that you know time. Mm-hmm. My siblings and I all got grounded for six months. And we were only allowed outside once a week. We were allowed outside for one hour. Wow. And um, we weren't allowed to have any electronics. We had to stay in like the living room and the kitchen because they were connected because it was a trailer so we had to stay in those two rooms and we had to be out of our rooms by nine and we had to be back in our rooms between nine thirty and 10 o'clock at night and like that was our schedule we were only allowed to shower on certain days we weren't allowed to be in the bathroom for longer than 15 minutes like we were only allowed to eat at certain times and like we had to make sure the house was spotless at all times and it was just really horrible And so one night, I've really tried really hard to figure out exactly the date of this night, but it's really hard for me because there's like just a gap in my memory that I don't remember like at all. So like, I don't know how many days it was before my father was arrested after this night, but this night is what caused it. So like he was at work at his job and my mom was like, don't bother him. You know, don't mess with him. He's in a really bad mood. Just leave him alone. Let him be, let him do his thing. I remember like it hit nine 30 and I immediately just up to my room gone, you know? And I was just laying in bed like for hours, just thinking like it's, this sounds really stupid and I've barely like opened up to people about it, but I want to be as like, open and honest about this because I don't want other people who have been through something to think that like they're crazy or stupid for their coping mechanisms and like totally I used to like talk to myself a lot about things that was going on and I would have like conversations with different people in my head like as I was like just lying down and 
Like I would just make up these beautiful worlds where like everything was perfect. And like, I would just live there. And so like, I would honestly like lie awake most of the night, just like in this beautiful world, because it was my escape. It was all I had. Yeah. And like, I remember I was just like laying in bed doing that. And out of nowhere, I hear my mother just screaming at the top of my lungs. And my mother never raised her voice. She never yelled. The only time she did was when my father wasn't home and like, someone was being rowdy. So um, I hear her just screeching and I've never heard her scream before. Not like this. And instead of, you know, calling my father, one of the pet names she would call him, she said, Michael, you know, she was like screaming, Michael, stop, like stop. And I remember she said like, get off him, stop, stop. And like, I was like freaking out. And so like, I remember I got up off my bed and I was like waiting in the doorway because we weren't allowed to have our doors closed when we slept because my parents are fucking crazy. So, um, like, I don't remember what my father said, but he said something. And then he stormed off to his room and like my brother stormed to his room and like slammed the door shut behind him. And I walked out in the living room and like my sisters were standing at the table and they just had like this look on their face, like just like the most horrified look I have ever seen. I've never seen them look like this again. It was honestly terrifying. And my little brother's just sitting in the corner of the couch with his DS in hand and just like, he's crying. And my mother's just standing there, just, just standing there. And so my sisters come back in the room and they told me what happened. So my elder brother, he's always been very bitey. He is always like clashed with my father. He never tried to avoid the conflict. He always just fought right back. And my father came home and he was in the mood and he was being very, very touchy with my brother. And my brother just wasn't taking it. And he told him, no, stop. You know, I don't like what you're doing. And like, my father was like poking at his sides and like, just like being really rough with him. And my brother just like screamed at him, I guess. And my father strangled my brother. And the only way that he stopped was my mother screaming at him. And it had never gotten quite to this point before. We had been like, our lives had been threatened so many times. My father owned so many weapons and I was actually slashed on the hip once because <laughs> I kicked him in the nuts. <laughs> like he tried to rape me. And so like he had this pocket knife and he slashed me with it. And like that was like the worst violence we ever saw other than being brutally beat. But like like it had never escalated to the point of him actually attempting to kill one of us. Mm-hmm. And my sisters, like all of the kids, like immediately we were in our rooms, like we were ignoring like everything. And so my sister comes in and uh, like I had like a walk bed and my other sisters had a bunk bed. And so me and my sister who like was on the top bunk, like her and I were very, very close. And so we just stayed up talking and talking about everything and like just stupid stuff, trying to get our mind off of everything. Cause there was absolutely no way we were sleeping after that. And um, at around midnight, my brother comes in and he's like, I texted, I have to put some preface before I say this. Uh, Mm -hmm. My elder three siblings do not, like Michael is not their biological father. Um, Me and my younger brother, we are the only like two that are actually biologically Michael's kids, but like we all share the same mom. So um, my elder brother came in and he was like, I texted my dad, I'm leaving in the morning. 
he was like, I stole my phone. I still had it because they put all our electronics in this box and taped it and like hid it under the bed in the room. Like there was no way we were getting it. And I guess my brother kept his phone, had it this whole time. And he connected to the neighbor's Wi-Fi. He was best friends with the neighbor's kid and was able to get a text out to his father, who is now my father. He's my adoptive dad. Mm -hmm. Um, And like, he was able to get a text out and, you know, get ready to leave. And so my father at this point, he had like thrown a tantrum, like after coming back out of his room and he had like broken so many things. And just like, I remember he shattered like so many cups because like he drank a lot. And he had these, like, big giant cups that, like, he'd fill with water. And, like, he had, like, these giant cups that he would fill with vodka because he would drink, you know, screwdrivers or what they're called. Mm -hmm. And he would drink, like, literally one of those huge things of Smirnoff vodka at night. And basically, yeah, I don't know how the dude's not dead from liver failure, honestly. (laughs) Seriously. (laughs) So he was passed out drunk on the couch and we could all hear him snoring and... Suddenly, my brother's standing in the doorway talking to me and my sisters, and suddenly the hallway light comes on, but my father's still snoring, and we all, like, we panic. We're like, oh, my God, what the fuck? Like, what's happening? And my mom comes up, and she's like, I texted, you know, your father, like, to my siblings, and she was like, it's fine. He's coming to get you. You know, Michael won't know you have your phone. She just, like, had our back, and she was really, really sad. She was crying. My mom always, like, she just always had this just air about her of being, like, forever depressed and just inside herself. Like, she was a shell of a woman that once was. She was just, like, really, really just gone this night. After, like, her and my siblings talked for a little while, her and my brother left, and me and my sister, we stayed up till, like, two in the morning, like, just, like, talking about stupid shit. I remember, like, specifically, one of the main things I asked her that night was, like, while you're out getting help for yourself, can you get help for us? Because she refused to let my brother go to the father's alone. She wanted to go with him. Like, I think she also wanted an out. And this was her opportunity. The next morning, my father, he wakes up. It's really early. We have to be like out in the living room by nine o'clock, like nine on the dot, we gotta be out. And so it's seven and my father comes down, he turns the hallway light on, he's coming down the hallway and he goes in my brother's room and he's like, I want you in the living room eldest brother I want you at the table and he comes to our room and he's like middle sister I want you at the table you too I want you in the living room so all my siblings get dressed really fast and like we're all really anxious like all I can describe like (laughs) when things got like that was just like your whole body feels cold and you're just shaking and just you feel just forever sick like it's horrible and so my father like he sits them at the table and we're all in the living room and Like, I'm at this point, like, just an audience member of what's about to happen. And he very calmly, which was very, very weird for my father, he was always very passionate about his anger. Mm -hmm. And so just out of nowhere, he's like, you know, like, really calmly, like, why do I have a text from your mother saying that you two are leaving to your father's? And for the first time, like, ever, my siblings truly screamed back. And my father was just silent. He was just sitting there dumbstruck. Like, I have never seen this man look so fucking stupid, but so scary at the same time. And, like, I remember he made, like, a snotty comment about, like, he was going to play dirty now. And so he went to his room and he comes out, like, 10 minutes later. And he's got my mom on the phone and she's crying. And he's like, 
I remember what he said. He was like, say goodbye to your children. I'm calling the sheriff. They're all going away. And um, like my mom was sobbing and screaming and telling him not to. And like, he and where was your mom at this a point? lot. She worked as a nurse in either Saratoga Hospital or Glens Falls Hospital. I don't remember what one. So like she was just at her job as a nurse. And like it was common for him to threaten to do this. But like I never heard him threaten like my mom to send us away before. He'd only threatened us. So like I remember I just went to my room and like I was so nervous and so anxious and so furious. And I just ripped a piece of paper off of a sketchbook I had and wrote because I got these really cool art markers for my birthday and it was great like I love the family member who got them for me so I wrote like on the corner of the paper you know he sexually abused us and I shoved it in my pocket and I went out the hall like as fast as I could like I was in and out as fast as I could and I just sat back down and I, I remember I just felt so sick and like oh it was so bad like there was just a rock in my stomach and like at that point my father was off the phone with my mother, like by the time I got back down and was back, you know, in the situation and like him and my siblings were negotiating a time for them to be home. And they settled on 12 o'clock the next Friday because my father was very, very adamant and very like large and excited. He has plans this weekend. He was going to take us someplace and, you know, it was going to be so fun. All of this stuff because he was trying to suck up for what he did and make it all better and so because my siblings agreed and were like fine whatever you know we're gonna be back obviously that didn't happen um Mm -hmm. like he sat down and he started like playing stupid stuff on Netflix because that was what he always did to try and like make up for it and my siblings left and like this is where it gets really fuzzy for me I don't remember the time frame between like them leaving and my father getting arrested Mm -hmm. like it's completely fuzzy and so April 20th 2016 at around 3 30 my father got a call to go pick up my mother because the car she was using to get to work had died and she had no way of getting home and he was like okay whatever and my youngest brother wanted to go because you know he liked getting out of the house he was my dad's like son and so the relationship between them was different Mm-hmm. and um what ended up happening was like they went to leave in the jeep and like my sister and I are just sitting at the table because it's only us two there now and I get up and I I'm getting to go to the bathroom and I turn and I look at the monitors that my dad has because he had cameras set up all around the house to constantly be watching us um when we were young he had ones in our rooms and like those got taken out when we were older and we like had because like some of my siblings had friends that like came over and, like, if we had, like, family spend the night, obviously, you know, they're going to question that. And so he took those out. But um, I remember I looked at the monitor that showed all the outside cameras. And the Jeep was still in the driveway. Like, no one was in it. And there was this little silver car next to it pulling out, and it pulled away. And I remember I just looked at my sister, and I was like, the Jeep's still here. They didn't leave yet. Like, what's going on? And she just looked at me like I was joking and, like, like I said something really stupid and I was just like no like I'm serious like look and so she got up and she was frantically texting and then the little silver car pulled back in and a man got out and he was like she was really dressed up like he looked dapper as fuck and all he had on was like like a bulletproof vest and like a gun still on his hip and all of this shit 
and he comes up to the door and he's doing like like he's not like knocking like a regular person like he's pounding on the door and like he's calling my elder sister's name like he knows her name he's like saying stuff like it's safe you can let us in like please open up we talk to your mom you know you can let us in like we know you're not supposed to but you can let us in and like my sister and I like we were not allowed to like open the door, acknowledge strangers, do anything like that. Like we were supposed to sit and wait until they left. It didn't matter how long they stayed. It didn't matter if they were family members or if we knew them, we had to leave it alone. So we just sat there like not knowing what to do. And so like the cop and like, um, he had two CPS workers with him, the cop and the CPS workers, like they go and they sit at this table um, because we had a picnic table out front for like when they like wanted to like, have a barbecue or something outside. Um, they sat there and he's calling someone and less than 30 seconds later, my sister's phone rings and it's my mom telling her to open the door. And she like just immediately gets up and opens it and they come in and they ask all of these questions. And what we went to was like a place where they like take like kids statements, like not an actual police station. Cause they thought that that would be absolutely terrifying. And it probably would have been, but also super cool. <laughs> um, <laughs> so they took us to a place called Saratoga center for the family. And um, that place is amazing. Everyone there is amazing. And um, they told us there our parents were arrested and that we probably weren't going to ever see them again. And they were trying to find housing. I was in questioning for a little over three hours. And by the time I got out, my little brother was there. And they didn't end up like finding proper housing for us till around one in the morning because this was the first time they had ever seen a case like this. We had CPS trying to figure out like who had like parental rights, like what was going on, who has custody of these children. And, you know, because my older three siblings, they can like go to their dads, no problem. But me and my younger brother, we were parentless. (laughs) And so they're trying to figure out like, what are we doing? And, you know, something I learned actually from talking, because I got really, really close to a lot of cops on the case is like the cops and the CPS don't really work together good at all. They just kind of like clash and fight over things. And like the cops wanted custody, CPS wanted custody. And um, they ended up figuring it out around like 12. And they called my now adopted father, who is my other three patients' dad, uh, patients, oh my God, my other three <laughs> siblings' dad. Yeah. And was like, we take these kids for, you know, a couple days max. And that's got to be like five years later, you know, <laughs> we're still here with him. Wow. So, what a wild story. Yeah, that's yeah, kind of crack filled. <laughs> <laughs> How did it feel when they said that you were probably not going to see your parents again? I don't honestly know. I was kind of really numb to everything that was going on. I was very like in a like such a weird place mentally at the time because like I had just opened up to someone for the first time ever about what my father had done. And when he questioned me, he was just like, like, he got straight to it. He was just like, is there anything that you know? Is there something you need to tell us that your dad's doing? And I was like trying to block him out. And I was just staring at this couch that's across from him. I've got a CPS worker trying to keep me comfy on the side. And I've got, you know, this big giant, like, this man is like so tall on this side, sitting in a tiny little baby chair, trying to ask me to talk about being raped by my dad. (laughs) And like, I'm just like trying to like, just like look at this couch and act like it's not happening. And I just started sobbing and I was like, yep, yep. (laughs) So this is happening. Yeah. In one sense, it's like, you're free, you know, you're safe. 
but it could probably couldn't have felt less safe in the environment that you were in. It was just so up in the I air. I was honestly like really nervous, but at the same time, I remember just like there was this relief that just came with like the news. You know, they're arrested. We're charging them. You know, this is what's happening. You know, there's going to be court proceedings. There's probably going to be a trial. All of this stuff, and like they explained everything, and the people who were there with us, like our advocates, they were honestly just like some of the best people I ever met they were very kind and gentle and just knew everything to say a lot of the cops um the cop who came to my house that day is the lead investigator at Warren County Police Department and he told us flat out this is the worst case of abuse that he's seen and um the ADA who prosecuted you know told us you know this is her worst case and like our case made national news Mm -hmm. (laughs) it's a lot and I don't know it's weird for me like when people talk about it being a lot and like I feel like whenever like anyone like finds out that I was abused and to that extent they're always like oh my god and I'm just kind of like okay you know it happened whatever (laughs) you know like that's my life like I lived through it and they're like oh I'm so sorry oh it's so horrible I'm just like okay you're being dramatic okay (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it, it, it wasn't that bad. And now you're reminding me of how horrible it was. Or I mean, it, it, not that it wasn't yeah. that bad. It wasn't that bad right now. But now you're reminding mm-hmm. me how bad it was back then. Like, yeah. thanks, I guess. It, it's funny when people <laughs> find out about this kind of stuff. And, you know, it's not a malicious reaction that they're having. Of course, they don't want to make you feel I bad, understand. But... It's absolutely horrifying. But yes. honestly, it's really comical. Like, my sister has told me, she went out and, like, she was living on her own. And, like, she still is living on her own. But, like, she was out and, like, she had made a new friend at, like, a bar or something. I don't remember how. But, like, she was out, like, at this gathering and she was talking to people and she told someone and they literally threw up. Like, because she told them. Like, they literally just threw up. Yeah. Yeah. And, again, that could also be a result of their own experiences causing things Mm -hmm. to bubble up that they maybe hadn't thought about. But um, yeah, and what's really amazing about talking to you is that this was five years ago and you're at a point now where you're talking so candidly and authentically about your experience in a way that is honestly truly amazing. Like the fact that you're 18 and I just, I really am sort of in awe of you. (laughs) Thank you so much. Of course really amazing to hear yeah well it took me years to get here there was a long time where I was at a point where I would spend every day wondering you know is tonight the night I'm gonna do it you know I don't want to get up in the morning I don't want to live with this anymore and it took me a lot I have worked through a lot with my counselors and um objectively and quantifiably I don't like I always feel really guilty saying it and talking about it because I don't want to undermine what my siblings went through but because I was Michael's biological daughter he had a different claim over me and was much different with me than he was with anyone else yeah my younger brother Michael's biological son was not abused like this he did not get the sexual aspect of it at all Mm -hmm. and um I don't like saying it but like I out of all my siblings had a lot more happen 
Yeah. I think that's the best way for me to word it. And totally. It was really rough. <laughs> no I kidding. have survivor's guilt, a lot of survivor's guilt, because honestly, like in comparative to like a lot of my siblings, I am at a very, very good place with my trauma and like my relationship with it is not like theirs. And a piece of me feels like I'm doing something wrong because I'm not where they're at. I just like kind of like went through like all of the therapy and just going through everything. I went so fast. I never really like sat and like just pondered one memory for longer than like a week. Like I just like, I just went through all of it like as fast as I could. Now I'm here and like, I remember like in my victim impact statement, like that I spoke at the sentencing, like my closing statement was like, I'm going to tell the world what you guys did. Like they're, it's good. They're going to know your names. I'm not going to be quiet. Like you're not going to shut me up. Like this is what's happening. This is what I'm going to say. You're going to have to deal with it because this is my power. This is me taking control of what you did to me. This is my life. I'm going to do this you guys are going to deal with it and you're going to have to see on the news as I get successful and help other people with what you fucked up people did. Yeah. Like, I think that's awesome. <laughs> I think it's the absolute best thing that you could be doing. And thank you with regards to the guilt that you're talking about. It's similar to the guilt of not wanting to run away. I think in mm-hmm. the sense that you don't want other people to be suffering as a result of, what you're doing, whether that's running away or healing, you don't want other people to feel bad about you feeling good. And I think one thing that can help with that is recognizing that you are at your most beneficial to others when you're feeling the best within yourself. You can provide the most benefit to your siblings and all of these other people on TikTok and around the world when you have healed and you're at a point where you can speak openly and truthfully about these experiences. And it's very likely that your siblings are not perceiving your healing in the way that you think they're perceiving it. Our minds always perceive the world so negatively, and we have a tendency to assume that people are thinking these things about us without any confirmation that they're actually thinking them. And it's very likely that your siblings are looking at you in the same way that I think I'm looking at you, which is in admiration and that they're feeling like you're somebody that they want to be like you're at a place where they want to get to. And I think rather than feeling bad about where you're, where you are, you can be proud of it and recognize that you're showing people that they can get to this point too. Even though you went through so much worse, you're still able to heal and recover. And it's something that you should be really proud of. And I completely understand why you feel guilty. And the sooner that you can release that guilt, the you'll be somehow even more beneficial to all of these people. <laughs> so don't feel too bad about it if you, if you can. But I also completely get that. And, you know, because I've spoken with a lot of people who are much older. For example, this one guy that I spoke with was about 65. And he was saying that, you know, he just wishes that he had spoken up earlier. He just really regrets not having more time to heal. And you are somebody who's on the polar opposite end of the spectrum. I think that people get discouraged the longer it takes for them to speak up and the longer it's been. You should never be ashamed at where you're at in the healing process. 
and you should never feel discouraged because other people have healed more. It's all a ongoing thing. I don't know if we ever fully heal, <laughs> you know, it's even though somebody like yourself and somebody like myself who are very open about these things, we're still going through it, you know? And I think that our brains just perceive other people as like, oh man, if I was just there, I would be okay. Yeah. Um, but you can't compare yourself to other people. It's a never ending cycle of negative perceptions of the world and yourself you have to compare yourself to yourself and recognize that if you healed a little bit today that's awesome that's so that's more than enough you know you're you're succeeding in that and uh it's never too late to speak up it it literally doesn't matter um if you're 18 or 65 it's the perfect time it's always the perfect time to speak up so I, I would just say that while I completely understand where you're coming from with that guilt, I think you can know that you're doing so much more good than you could ever even comprehend. And I think TikTok is probably going to start, it already has started giving you a taste of the impact that you're, that you're having on people. But just being who you are it, 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 after everything that you've gone through is going to be helping your siblings more than they'll probably ever even express to you. So um, yeah, I'm just... Uh, happy for you i guess is what i'm trying to say definitely thank you very much you give really good advice (laughs) (laughs) glad to hear it and there was another thing that i wanted to ask you about with the trial what was that experience like for you because i also went to trial i spoke up when i was 10 and i think we went to trial when i was 11 but the guy who molested me did not get convicted and so i'm curious what that experience was like I actually got really, really lucky, honestly. I remember being so bitter and so upset when this first happened, but looking back, I am grateful. My parents took a plea deal for the two oldest people they abused. I wasn't on that list of people they had to own up and say in court, you know, I'm guilty for this. Um, Did you say you were not on that list? No, because they took a plea deal. Like it was only for two people and it was to save us all from sparing. Um, oh my God. <laughs> Spare us all from trial. I what does that mean? Blundered that word. <laughs> they didn't want us to like have to testify. One of my siblings testified on grand jury and it was really, really traumatic for her. Mm-hmm. And honestly, I don't know how I would have done in court having to do that. It would have been really, really hard. My parents both took a plea deal for 40 to life. But if you were in the courtroom and heard everything the judge said, it's, it's just life. They just get life. Mm. Um, my mother's actually lost her chance of parole after 40 years. She was found with hard drugs on her. But she was in prison. She somehow got, you know, a hold of them and uh, she lost her chance for parole. Yeah, I don't think they're going to give too many second chances in this scenario. <laughs> no, I don't think so. Before, like, people are sentenced, like, I don't know if this is, like, the same for, like, other people's cases or if it's just, like, my case, but, like, they did, like, a 30-day, like, psychological exam of my parents, and neither one of them felt anguish for what they did for us. Neither one of them felt guilty. They didn't feel sorrow for what they did to their own kids. All they felt was anger and sadness because they were now getting put in prison. And 
that was really rough to hear at first because my mother, you know, she's the only mom I have. I don't have an adoptive mother. And she was as much of a victim as we were. And I always thought that, you know, she felt bad for it. But I guess not. <laughs> you know, it's it, it it's so deeply rooted in who they are and their... Mm-hmm it's very likely that they were going through something similar, whether it was growing up or at some point in their lives, this behavior was probably normalized. My mother was abused by three men in her life and I'm pretty sure my father was. It doesn't make it okay, you know, but it, it, it might explain a little bit more why they didn't feel remorse towards the situation because it was so normalized in their head. And I don't know if that makes it easier or harder from your perspective (laughs) to know that they went through it too. But I I think for me and the guy who molested me, I don't know if it happened to him too, but I assume that it did. And I think that there is some solace in knowing that by speaking up, you're preventing, I mean, you're ending generational trauma, you know, you're ending a a Mm -hmm. cycle and any way that you can rationalize letting go of anger that you're holding onto is worth using because it doesn't serve any purpose and all it does is tie you further absolutely a lot of people like they're really really angry when everything happens and like I understand being like so angry and just livid at your abuser and this person who hurt you so badly but it's not healthy for you to hold on to that anger all the time and just constantly have it in you like I understand like you're betrayed by like these people because more often than not it's someone you know who does this yeah and like that's horrific like someone you trust has gone out of their way to hurt you in one of the worst ways possible and it's really fucking hard but honestly best thing you can do in the healing process is just learn to let that anger go it's not worth it to hold on you deserve better than that yeah i couldn't agree more can you talk a little bit about what therapy has been like for you? You know, after all of this stuff happened with the trial and your parents are now in jail, you have this new family. What has your healing journey been like so far? Therapy at first was absolute shit. Because mm-hmm. I was so fresh out of this, like just this horrible, horrible situation. None of the counselors who like they tried to get me with had ever treated anybody with trauma like this and who had been in a situation like this yeah and so it was new for like everybody and like when i opened up like it was just like you know we have one day in therapy where i just sit there just completely mouth shut and like not say anything and then there'd be other days where i would just spew and i'd be in there for like three extra hours just talking about this shit i was i was really young i was a little kid i was 13 you know going on to 14 like i was I was a little baby and I didn't know any better. And like, I remember like, I was always told, you know, you're so mature and all this stuff. And like, my therapist like wanted me to be a kid and wanted me to act like a kid. So she treated me like a kid. And I remember it was so frustrating at first, Mm -hmm. but I'm honestly really grateful that she did that. The healing process is, is hard and it's not linear. Like, I think a lot of people have that misconception that, you know, once you get past something, you're never going to get, you know, stuck on it again. But that's really, really not true. I have things that I thought I got over, you know, so long ago that like just come back. And it's one little detail that gets me. 
And like, it's okay to have bad days. It doesn't make you a horrible person. And it doesn't mean that you're just wrong and not healing properly. If you're not happy sometimes, like you've been through something absolutely horrible, absolutely fucked. Like, yeah, you're not going to be perfect all the time. It's okay to just be sad. I think that there's some really toxic expectations. Like there definitely was with like my family. Cause I've always been very, very bubbly and very happy. And I always was made to feel very, very guilty for it. Mm-hmm. And it's taken me a long time to just get to a point where I, I understand it's okay to have a bad day. It does not make you a bad person. And like taking time for yourself, like in stepping back from situations that doesn't make you a bad person. That doesn't make you selfish. Like, you need to take care of yourself because if you're not okay and you're not just completely whole, you're not going to be able to help anyone else. You're not going to be able to do anything for anyone else. You're just draining a dead battery. Absolutely. I think people that are on the healing journey, you know, which is all of us to some extent, often get so discouraged when they're like, ah, oh, like I thought I was done with this. I thought I was done dealing mm-hmm. with this thing. And it shouldn't that doesn't diminish any of the healing that you've already done. It's just an opportunity to heal more. All that means is that you have the ability to feel even better than you've been feeling. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it doesn't mean that you haven't done an amazing job thus far. And I feel the same way. You know, I think that it, it does become easier. The more that you are willing to look at these experiences and accept them and let them go, Um, Mm -hmm. the less you'll feel bad, but it doesn't mean that you'll never feel bad. And it's absolutely okay to feel bad some of the time, all of the time, as much as you feel appropriate. (laughs) Just don't, don't suppress it. There isn't no time limit. And like, you don't have to heal in a certain amount of time. Like if you're healing slower than someone else, you shouldn't feel guilty. You shouldn't feel upset about that. You are healing at the pace that is right for you. You are getting better at the pace that you can physically do. Other people like could get like raped their whole life every day and just be right back up, just bounce right back. And other people could go through one very traumatic thing and it could be crippling. Like it affects everybody different and comparing yourself to someone else and how they're healing in their trauma. That isn't fair to you and you're shortchanging yourself. You deserve better than that. You don't deserve to be sitting here wondering, what am I doing wrong? You know, why can't I be like that? Why can't I be where she is when... You're doing the best you can. That's all anyone can ask for. A hundred percent. And, you know, that's really the best thing that you could say to your siblings. And, Mm -hmm. And there's so much benefit to analyzing yourself and the way that you operate. You know, I'm a big people pleaser. I find it very difficult to know to people. Yeah. And I think a big part of that is as a result of getting molested. It's something that I didn't Mm -hmm. want to let people down. I didn't want the guy who molested me to be mad at me if I said no. Um, Oh my God. Yes. Like I was so scared for the longest time that, you know, if I come out about this, they're still my parents. Like, yeah. I still have a connection to them, even if I don't want to. And there were good memories. Like Mm -hmm. I used to feel so horrible and like, what if I'm making it all up? What if they're right? Because there were those few good memories. And, you know, I have gotten to a point where I've learned it's okay to appreciate the good memories as long as I don't let them undermine what they did and the type of people they are. Those moments were happy and they were great, but that doesn't mean I'm a bad person for appreciating a couple memories that were good in my childhood. Kat, you're so f- fucking wise. <laughs> like, 
it's it's just awesome and some of my fondest memories were at my friend's house and just playing mario kart playing soccer these things don't have to be tainted you can take whatever you want from these experiences uh, with you into the future and let go of everything that doesn't serve you as tempting as it may be to just be like ah, that all of that time was horrible it's a wash i don't ever want to think about it i think it's okay to acknowledge that some good times happened some maybe some of the best times and um it's just interesting that you say that because I've had a lot of conversations on here and, it, and I, it feels like every time that you talk to somebody in depth about these things, new things come up and mm-hmm. just hearing you say that made me realize it just had a little bit of a flood of memories come back into my head about <laughs> positive things that have happened and it, during that time. And it kind of made me think about, I spoke with somebody recently, her name's Ashley Vanderlindy, episode 23, and she was talking about flashbacks. And, and I was saying how I don't really get negative flashbacks anymore. It's changed. And I think that's a result of being willing to think about these things and not be worried about them popping into your head. But I think what, yeah, but what you just said there made me have a totally different kind of flashback (laughs) it was like the most positive flashback i think that i've ever had just now that's kind of crazy honestly and i'm so happy that we're having this conversation because i think that that's maybe a point that uh that should be encouraged to get to where you can have a flashback on the positive times yeah that's why that's what like that's what it's like for normal people. <laughs> Why can't I have yeah. a happy memory? Why has it all got to be trauma and disgusting shit? I was raped every other day for 10 years. Like, there's a lot to go over there. And I barely remember any of it. I barely remember most of my childhood. Like, mm. I just have, like, these little fragments and just bits of pieces that come back sometimes. And, like, a big thing for me... Like, it probably sounds stupid, but, like, I had so much trouble accepting, you know, this stuff actually happened because if it happened, I should remember it, right? Like, it shouldn't be just something that is gone because it was traumatic, right? Like, yeah. these are huge, and how come I can only remember, you know, barely half of it, you know? Yeah. Make it make sense. <laughs> so. I know, and it's it's frustrating when you are at a place where you start questioning the, the your truth you you questioning what actually happened was i was i lying about this you know like did this really go on and it's such a reasonable thought process to have because part of you doesn't want this to have happened but i mean most of you 100% of you what am i talking about you don't want any of this to have happened it's so reasonable for you to start questioning it and it's a defense mechanism our minds work in crazy ways when it comes to handling trauma and I think that's part of why people have such a difficult time remembering these things is because they're not things that you want to remember. It's totally natural to not have perfect memory or any memory around these types of things. Mm -hmm. And um, the quicker we can stop blaming ourselves for not having a perfect recollection of the events, you know, the quicker we can start uh, letting go of the guilt that's associated with that. And um You've said so many amazing snippets here that could work for the answer to this question, but I do still want to ask you for somebody who's been through something similar to you and is hoping to get to the point where you're at now, what advice would you give to somebody like that? Honestly, 
go with the flow. Something I really struggled with was I was just trying to like push through everything that happened and get through therapy and healing so fast. Don't do that. Like take it as it comes. Like obviously like push yourself and challenge yourself, but don't do it to a point where just like it's all you do. You have to grow as a person and be yourself and be able to breathe. Dedicating your whole life just to fix things that honestly don't need to be fixed is not healthy. Like you're not broken because you have trauma. You're not a bad person and it doesn't make you any less worthy of being loved and being cared for and being taken care of. It's such great advice also to hear from somebody like yourself who is so young and has healed so much in this short period of time that you've been healing for to know that there's no rush and feeling like you have to rush through these things is going to have the exact opposite effect. Mm -hmm. It's going to, it's going to take longer and not needing to get to any point by any specific time allowing these things to go and just as you said go with the flow I think it's just the best mm-hmm. advice the thing that really helped me when going through it was just like look back on like where you used to be like you're not mm-hmm. there anymore like you're moving forward like you're continuing going and if you move backwards a little bit don't beat yourself up you're still going like yeah. you're going to get there it's okay to take steps back sometimes it doesn't make you wrong and it doesn't mean that you're just not doing it right just go with it Well, Kat, you are quite an amazing person, and I just feel so grateful to have been able to chat with you now, and I am so excited for you and to see all of the people that you impact over the course of your life. (laughs) You're going to help a lot of people. Thank you for inviting me and just like giving me an opportunity to speak and have a voice. It means a lot. Absolutely. I wanted to also say your TikTok handle. It's a stupid meme between me and my boyfriend. It's communist Kirby. (laughs) (laughs) And like, I had people in my comments on my video being like, I don't believe a communist. And I was like, it's a meme. It's a joke. Right. C-O-M-M-U-N-I-S-T-K-I-R-B-Y on TikTok. And Instagram black underscore sabbath underscore babe Mm -hmm. and um i also just want to give a shout out to hey b for tagging me in your video and saying that you need to be on the podcast and that you're truly an inspiration so thank you hey b for allowing this to happen and thank you so much for agreeing to do this this was such a fulfilling conversation and um Thank you for allowing me to have a little flashback there of uh, some positive memories that I hadn't had in a long time. Pretty awesome. Um, I'm happy to help. Yes. Thank you for just having me. Just This has been a really great experience. I'm, I'm really grateful. I'm yet to The sun is really out right now. Yes. Shining bright. Well, thank you so much for doing this, and we'll talk again soon. Yeah, it sounds great. Thank you for having me. Of course. 